0: Thank you, Daniel. Yes, good morning. It's so good to see all of you, one screen at a time. Hey, a couple of things before we read the scripture this morning and dive in. As Daniel said, we're in Acts again, and we're in Acts chapter 17. So hopefully you have a device or a Bible nearby, and you can be there with us in Acts 17. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you know of all the features that we have here in Zoom, and so... Down in the lower left-hand corner at the far left side of that bar down there where you are doing all kinds of things, it says reactions. And there's two possibilities. You can clap like that, or you can have a thumbs up like that. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is there's no way to have a negative reaction. You can only react positively, and so that's really good. And when we do get back together in, uh, you know, in our worship space, I just want to encourage that, you know, that's all we have there as well. There's only the possibility for positive reactions. That'd be awesome. So you can clap. You can give a thumbs up. You probably already know, but I do want to let you know if you don't, that you can also switch between kind of this Brady Bunch 25 in a box. Or you can switch to speaker view so that you see primarily the person who's talking. And that's up in the upper right hand corner there. You can toggle between speaker and um, the Brady Bunch view, or I guess it's called gallery view, actually. So this morning is a good time to, to switch to speaker view because uh, I'm not going to be reading the scripture this morning, but Tricia is actually going to be reading the scripture. And so you might want to switch to speaker view to see her as she reads. How do you like that, babe? So, I'm going to let you unmute yourself, and Tricia is going to be reading Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. Hope you're taking a look at it there, and let's just listen as we go through. And I just ask Holy Spirit, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. Let us hear from God as this scripture is read in Jesus' name.
1: While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tricia. So we're in Athens. I love this particular passage because it starts to feel like home. Athens is definitely the most Western-facing city of all the cities that Paul goes to when it comes to culture. We're going to see several things today in this passage that I think for you, at least they do for me, they feel familiar. And it feels like Paul, in one sense, has reached the ends of the earth as far as we're concerned in a very real way. And it'll be interesting to talk about that. So that's where we're at. And Paul is by himself in this particular episode. The pattern has been created now where Paul is the first one to speak when they come to a new city. He's the evangelist and the apostle. And he is the one who stands before the people in public as they are gathered and shares the gospel. And always shares it well. You remember that if there is a synagogue in the city, that's where he goes first. And he teaches among the Jews because they already have a revelation of God and they have a history with God. So it's the best place to start. These are people who potentially um, know what Paul is referring to. And he's building on an understanding they already possess. And then if he's in a city where there isn't a synagogue, he tends to go like to the river where there's a common place of prayer for those who worshipped Yahweh, even if they weren't Jews. Uh, and the pattern has been that Paul teaches and then things get stirred up, both in a positive way and in a negative way. Some begin to believe, but also many begin to protest. Many of the Jews protest because they have been the ones who have kind of owned The crowds, when it comes to religious conversation and teaching, and Paul begins to take away their followership, the scriptures say they became jealous. They became jealous of the attention that Paul was getting because it was an attention that belonged to the Jewish teachers beforehand. But also because of other religions and other gods, uh, there's complaints often by people who feel like these are false gods or a false god that Paul is talking about. So Paul's teaching always stirs up both positive and negative activity. And oftentimes, and this was true where Paul just was, he just has to get out of town for the sake of his own life. But he tends to leave behind his companions that are with him. So in this case, it's it's Silas and Timothy, and he leaves behind. Generally, the pattern is he leaves them behind to establish the believers that have the people who have come to believe, to create some sense of connection with them, and even ultimately to create churches and create eldership among those churches. So this is that situation again, where Paul has left uh, Thessalonica and that area, and he's gone down to Athens, and Timothy and Silas are still where they were, uh, creating some sense of structure and calling out leaders, and they're going to come and join Paul. So Paul's alone. He's in Athens, and he does what he loves to do, and that is simply to talk about Jesus the Messiah and the resurrection. And so he's by himself, and he begins to do this. So that's why it says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, in Athens he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. I want to frame, so this is a a bit of an emotional experience for Paul. It says he was greatly distressed To see the city full of idols. My first guess as I as I hear that, it makes me think that Paul might have felt offense for the sake of God because there were so many other gods. But as I have grown in my understanding of Scripture, and as I have come to understand Paul better, Paul's motivations, what drives him, um, where his heart is at, I think there's probably a better way to cast. Paul's emotion here and I think it's probably also uh, if not exclusively a brokenness for the city and for its people he sees basically that this is a city full of humans who are looking for some sense of God you know every human has this sense in them that there must be something bigger than myself there's that sense that there must have been a creator or somehow things came into being and perhaps there is some kind of um god that oversees things because so much happens in the world that doesn't seem to happen at the choice of human wills so is there another will at play and so civilizations have always created they've tried to interpret their experiences and they've tried to interpret um, their own lives and say what must god be like based on the life i experience and then myths are created and these are handed down through cultures to the next generation and the next generation and So throughout the world, humans are always guessing what is God like or what are the gods like. And this culture certainly did a tremendous amount of that. They had uh, layers upon layer upon layer of their guesses as to who the gods were and what they were like. And Paul sees this, and I think out of that, that's a part of his grief, is that humans have tried so hard in this city for generations to comprehend God, and yet they haven't been able to lay hold of it. And so maybe some of his grief comes out of that. Greatly distressed, strong emotions, perhaps not of judgment, but perhaps emotions of compassion. Jesus was certainly that way. Uh, he could of anyone, been distressed In a frustrating way, as he looked at Jerusalem shortly before his crucifixion and said, Why won't you listen to me? I'm so frustrated with you. And yet what the scriptures record him saying is, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have waited to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you would not let me do it. There's that heart of compassion. Jerusalem, I longed to bring you into the safety of the truth and the will of my Father, but you would not let me. So the the deep compassion of Jesus uh, was what was present. Not frustration, but compassion. And I would say possibly that's where Paul was at. So Paul does what he does. Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to to debate with him. Paul has pulled out all the stops now. He's going anywhere he can possibly go. He's gone to the synagogues and he's reasoning with Jews. He's gone to where uh, God-fearing Greeks are as well. And, And here it says for the first time, he even just goes into the marketplace. He goes into the agora, into the public places and looks for places to have conversations. He's desperate to do what he loves to do. And that is to share the gospel with anyone who will listen. Uh, We have a couple of groups mentioned here, Epicureans and Stoics. It's curious to me that humanity, wherever it goes, uh, tends to form itself into commonalities. And then even among commonalities... Uh, those folks tend to break into two groups. So as an example, we see this here in America. We're here as people who hold democracy as a commonality. It's the the government that we believe in, the way that we believe a nation should be governed, given who people are and how they operate. And yet even among us, we have these two separate subcategories of uh, Democrats and Republicans, and of course, many more under that. Even in the church, when you think of the church, we're gathered in common around Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, he's our Savior, and yet we have all of these places where we kind of split up into, for instance, charismatics and conservatives or non-charismatics. It seems like over every possible issue that we could talk about, there's always two sides, at least, if not more. Certainly true here again with these philosophers. And Athens is a city, it's got to be the city of cities when it comes to philosophy. Even though the Romans conquered the Greek um, Empire and Athens in particular, they had such a respect for the city and its high value of philosophy and education that they let it exist in that way. Uh, The Roman Empire actually honored the Athenians for who they were and what they did. And they didn't try to take apart what they did and they didn't disperse its people in other parts of the kingdom, but or the empire, but they allowed the Athenians to stay together and actually honor their culture of philosophy and education. So who are the Epicureans and the Stoics? Uh, Epicureans taught that one should pursue fulfillment and actively avoid displeasure or suffering. So their philosophy was we are meant to be fulfilled, however we define fulfillment. Whether that's eating and drinking, whether that's through entertainment, whether that's through work, whatever we interpret as human fulfillment, human flourishing, we should be free to go after that. And secondarily, we should be free to avoid any kind of pain that we want to. I can't think of a philosophy that better fits the American philosophy. I think America is very Epicurean. Uh, even our Constitution says that everyone has a right to the pursuit of happiness, that all of us should be free to pursue fulfillment and avoid displeasure. And that's, that's the way that we are set up, and that's what we do. Every advertisement is an enticement to uh, set us free from some kind of displeasure, whether it's the displeasure of not having, or whether we need pain relief, or whether we need entertainment, our, our culture is set up for this. We do have a few Stoics in America, too, though. The Stoics thought that one attained fulfillment by accepting the course of events, including pain and suffering. So their philosophy was much more of a passive philosophy. Life happens. It's a life of fate. And fate is what it is, and we just need to accept it. And fulfillment lies in accepting what comes to us as the experience of life, whatever it is if it's pain we should sit in our pain if it's pleasure we should be grateful for our pleasure but they believe that as life happened uh, the fulfillment was found in embracing all of life and i think there's a lot of philosophies that that engage that kind of idea as well this is the way it is and i just need to roll with it the view of god among people like this is very much the idea that god is as we say today the universe you know the universe is choosing this the universe told me this today it's this idea that God is in all of creation, and it's just, he is fate. He is the universe, and we should accept it as it happens. Kind of, We would say a very kind of new age perspective, that everything that happens, happens for a reason, and I should embrace it and learn from it. So these are the dominating philosophies here in Athens. There's a whole lot more, but these were the ones who were at the top. They even had kind of the status in the city of the wise ones among us. So the story goes on. Some of them asked... What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. For they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Jesus and the resurrection were not a part of the story in Athens. That was a new story. They had stories of Greek gods. They had stories of creation. And even Areopagus refers to Arius, the god of war. The Areopagus was kind of this place for debate, and so that's why they called it uh, what they did. It's, it was kind of the home of the god of war, the Areopagus. I want to spend a little bit of time on this verse in particular. I feel like, at least for us today, this is um, the meat of the teaching and what we want to go after. And it was simply this. They said he's talking about foreign gods because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection i think this is an incredible statement uh, throughout acts luke is continuing to refine his own words for the gospel and so he keeps summarizing what luke uh, what paul is preaching in different ways and here he's chosen four simple words Jesus and the resurrection. This this is where Luke has come to in this kind of evolution of his own words for the gospel. And I think they're really important for us to talk about for just a little bit. Jesus and the resurrection. I have heard many people be asked the question, what is the gospel? the scariest part of that situation is how the room is usually silent for at least quite a few seconds. And I've heard the question asked in seminaries, and I've heard it asked in Sunday school classes, and I've heard it asked on a Sunday morning, and the question comes, what is the gospel? And we all know, ah, that's a question I should have a good answer to, and I'm not sure what it is. Or it's like, oh, there's so much that could be said, because the gospel is so much, I don't even know where to start. But the bottom line is, it does seem difficult a lot of times for people to come up with the first thing that you might say. The gospel is this. So I want to offer to you this opportunity to set us all free, starting today and moving forward. Whenever anybody says to us, What is the gospel? This is what I think you can blurt out every time Jesus and the resurrection. What is the gospel? Jesus and the resurrection. Because really, it is, to me, the best place that you could start. There's so much to go to from here, but it really lets us start in the right place. And I want to share with you kind of what I've been learning, which is actually new to me, and that is the second part of that statement, resurrection. Throughout my life, when we have talked about the gospel, the focus has not been on the resurrection. It's actually been on what? It's been on the crucifixion the crucifixion of Jesus. Even the icons that we put up in the churches are crosses, and the things that we wear around our necks, or perhaps on our ears, are crosses. And we tend to center the gospel around the crucifixion legitimate for sure that work of Jesus is what sets us free from sin it is what takes away condemnation and so it's extremely significant but it's not where Luke lands if Luke has a choice and he wants to pare it down to the fewest possible words Luke consistently says in the book of Acts resurrection and I keep asking myself asking the Holy Spirit why why is it the resurrection and not the crucifixion that is so interesting to me But really, the crucifixion takes us halfway through the work of Jesus. The crucifixion opens the door, but it opens the door to something extremely significant, and that is it opens the door to life. It opens the door to eternal life. And the goal of the work of Jesus Christ was to take us through the cross and through freedom from condemnation, through uh, freedom from sin, but to this place of sinless life, hope-filled life, a life led by God, a life of love and oneness between humans and God and humans and one another. And so really the final work, the ultimate work, the accomplishment of Jesus is seen in the resurrection. And I think now more than ever, when one of the the things that so many people are struggling with is this fear of death, legitimately so, the answer to that question the answer to the emotions of fear around death is hey, Jesus has provided resurrection. Even though the coronavirus brings death closer to many people, and the thought of it, coronavirus or not, every human gets to take a turn at dying. Our turn will come. It may not be corona, and it may not be this year, but every one of us is going to die. This is human reality. It's happened in every generation before us, and this generation will not be an exception. At some point, this is a reality. So this is why this answer of resurrection is such a tremendous answer to every human heart, because we all fear death. We all have the sense that life is so good. I believe life could be even better, and even as hard as it is, I don't want it to end. I don't want life to end. I want to be a part of life. And the author of God in Christ Jesus is... I know, I created you for that, and that's why there's life after this life. There's life after temporary life. There's life after broken life. And the life after this life is not temporary. The life after this life is eternal. And the life after this life is not broken. The life after this life is complete. And all of the things that you imagine and that you wish that life could be will happen all that we feel like, gosh, it should be like this and it shouldn't be like that. The book of Revelation says, every tear will be wiped away and every sad memory will be gone away with. And moving forward, life will be as we might imagine that it would be in Christ. That is all about resurrection. That's the hope of resurrection. The other piece of this forward word gospel definition, of course, is Jesus. And, and this, we don't even have to explain <laughs> Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. Good news is news that comes in a story that has some bad news to it. And that's every human story. Every human story has some degree of brokenness or emptiness or incompletion. And so the good news is Jesus says, I have come to complete what is incomplete in you. I have come to provide what is lacking in your story. I have come to take away the fear, the sadness, and the emptiness of life and to provide fulfillment and wholeness and life and healing and oneness and unity. So this is what the gospel is. Jesus is the good news, the one who completes life, and the resurrection is good news. It is life after life. And of course, this is a lot of new ideas to these people here in Athens, and this is what Paul hopes to bring to at least some. So let's go on. Verse 19. After Paul talked, then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. This was the great public place of debate and presentation, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, And we would like to know what they mean. And then Luke provides this editorial comment. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is still true today. If you go to Athens and you spend time in public, it will be easy to find groups of folks who are philosophizing who are arguing about and purporting certain ideas. And again, isn't this our culture? When you look at, in in one sense, Facebook is a bit of an Areopagus. It's where we go to philosophize. It's where we go to share the latest thing. Did you hear about this? Have you known this? The uh, advent of TED Talks in the last few years, to me, are an incredible example of this idea. Always wanting to hear new ideas, new philosophies, and new thoughts. It is our culture. This is what we desire. Imagine the Apostle Paul being able to give TED Talks in our current culture. What would they be like? What would he say? What would interest people, and how would he address them? This is the kind of culture Paul was in in Athens, and it's the culture that we live in. Because of that, I want to suggest to you, as we move towards winding up this teaching, that Paul gives to us a tremendous model for how we can communicate the gospel in the culture that we are now living. It's exactly what he was doing here. I think, too, this also uh, shows us what Paul later writes about when he talks about the two great cultures that he brought the gospel to. He brought the gospel to the Jewish culture, and he brought it to the Greek culture or the Gentile culture. And in 1 Corinthians one twenty two, he said, Jews seek a sign and Greeks look for wisdom. Jews seek a sign and Greeks look for wisdom. Just to remind you what that means, Jewish people had the wisdom of God in the law and the prophets. So they had all the content that they needed. And the one sign, the one um, authentication of the word of God was signs. They wanted to see signs. This is why Jesus was so controversial and why the Pharisees and the Sadducees had such a hard time with him. Because Jesus came with signs. He was actually able to do the miraculous And so for them, that was difficult. They had the teachings, they had all the the laws, but they didn't have the signs to confirm the authority of God in their leadership. And so they looked for signs. Greeks do not necessarily look for signs. Greek look for wisdom. We look for the story that makes sense to us. We look for the story that seems to best explain the reality that we live in. Why is the earth as it is? Why do humans act the way they act? What does it look like to go forward as humans? What does it look like to create a culture and a people who live well, who love well, uh, a culture that's equitable for everyone involved? So they look for wisdom. And of course, Paul says, but we preach Christ because he is both the wisdom of God and the power of God. So in God is what both Jews and Greeks are looking for. All right, let's move on. Verse 22. So Paul is in the Areopagus, and it says, Then he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Again, going back to what is Paul's disposition, I know when I initially have read this passage, and I've heard others teach it, they often talk about it as if Paul is kind of taking a a, a fatherly uh, posture towards children who are ignorant, and he's saying what you don't understand I am now going to tell you. That's certainly true, Uh, in some way, because those are the very words he's using. But I would challenge us to wonder if there is some sense of compassion, some sense of positive appeal in Paul, rather than being one who comes as a condemner to say, you've gotten it wrong, and I'm going to straighten you out. Actually, one who says, I see in you an honest seeking. I see you as a people asking honest questions, and you seem to know there's more to God than what you understand, and you even for that reason created this one idol to the unknown God because you realize there's something you don't know. There's got to be a God we don't know about, and I'm here to tell you today that that's true, and I know the God you don't know. I wonder if that's more the heart that was behind Paul as he was here. Because remember, we're called not to condemn, but to speak the truth and to speak compassionately in a way that people can receive it, not in a way that puts them off, not in a way that condemns them and and says that they're wrong, but instead in a way that appeals to them. And I, I would suggest that's probably closer to how Paul is appealing here to say I see your seeking. I see your openness. You're even knowing there's something you don't know. Let me tell you what you have yet to understand. I, I would say, too, that they continue to listen to him, and that seems to emphasize the fact that he was making an appeal that was worth listening to. I want to suggest that in what Paul is doing there is one of four principles that Paul gives here by modeling them of how to share the gospel. And I would say to you, I know when we say share the gospel, we think of a non-Christian coming into uh, the presence of a Christian uh, and that the Christian is speaking to the non-Christian. But I would also suggest in our homes, as parents, as you are wanting to teach your children, to disciple your children, this is the same potential way that you might do that even in our own households and with our own friends, I think Paul is giving us here a way to appeal to people to lead them into greater understanding of Jesus and of the resurrection, wherever they're at, whether they know nothing or whether they are already in that learning process. Paul is giving us a model for appealing to people and helping share uh, Jesus Christ and the resurrection with them. And, that, and the first thing that he does there is to raise a question that is actually being asked by the audience. He is suggesting that the Athenians were asking the question, is there a God that we don't know about? Is there something we have yet to understand? And he wants to say to that question, I have an answer for you. I have an answer for you. And the way that we can interpret this for ourselves, friends, is to say among our family, in your children, what are the questions they're asking right now about life, about their experience, about their feelings, about who they are, about who their friends are, And how can we pay attention to the questions that our audience is asking and be able to say, hey, I have an answer for you, and that answer comes from Jesus, and here's what that answer is. So if we truly care and we truly want to disciple, make disciples of people and witness to them, what are the questions they are asking, and how can we speak to those questions with Jesus as the answer? Let's see what else Paul does. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Here Paul shows us that to truly share the gospel well, to make disciples, we really need to understand where is the one in front of me in their own process of coming to God? What do they already know? How can I build on what they already know? So again, if they're Jews, you go to the synagogue and you build on a lifetime of the Old Testament scriptures and you build on it with the truth about Messiah has come. The long-awaited Messiah is here now. When you're not among Jews, that there's no reason to go that way. That's not the story they are in. What is the story they are in? And Paul's appeal consistently with the non-Jew is to creation. Everyone understands that there is some sense of an origin to life. There's an origin to the earth and to humanity. And so uh, Paul appeals to this idea of the creator, the creator God. In the book of Romans, he does so well to articulate this, that it's within us to know, it's just a part of our human instinct, that there is a creator. I see it in his creation. He expresses his attributes of creativity and power and beauty and organization and symbiotic relationships and systems. This is who God is, and I see that. And so Apollo appeals to that. And I would suggest to you that in anyone's life who you are wanting to to help grow in Christ, to be discipled, or even to come to Jesus for the first time, to begin to follow him, it's good to know their story and to ask the Holy Spirit, what do they already know? What revelation of God do they already have? What have they already seen to be true about God, and what's the next thing they need to know? And oftentimes, the next thing they need to know is is a misunderstanding that they're having that needs to be corrected, that needs to be made right. So Paul is appealing here to the Athenians who thought that the way to relate to God is to serve and to make sacrifices, that this is what it means to relate to a god. To relate to a God is to offer to make a shrine for him to live in or her to live in, and then to make sacrifices to that God. This is the way we relate to God, whoever he, she, they are. This is what we do. And Paul wants to say, hey, that's unnecessary. You misunderstand who God is. God has actually come to you. God has actually created a place for you, and it's called the earth. He's created a home for you. And God is actually here for your sake, God does not need you. The gods do not need you. You need God. That's who God is. Again, let me read. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. I've made a home for you. Don't make a temple for me. I made a home for you. And he marks out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Again, very positive and very hopeful language. God is not that far away. You already know a little bit about him. Can I tell you something more? And can I help maybe correct or adjust something here that that isn't quite right? I want you to understand because God is for you. God loves you, created you, and wants to be connected to you. So we want to appeal to the revelation of God that people already have. And then we want to speak truth in the face of the lie or the lies that they might be believing. And again, with grace and gentleness, but with strong conviction of what the truth is. Finally, let's look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Change your mind. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Again, a a reference to Jesus and the resurrection. And this is perhaps a piece that we need to be reminded of today, is that this world that we're living in is not endless. And the situation of incompleteness and brokenness will not go on forever. And so we're not just one more generation in an endless number of generations that have the opportunity to find God or not. But there will come a day when Jesus will be sent back to the earth for a second time, to fulfill all the scriptures that he didn't fulfill in the first coming, when he will set up a kingdom and when he will judge. And Paul is wanting to make that appeal to these people who tend to want to philosophize forever and feel like there's no need to come to a conclusion. We can talk about this till we die. It's all open-ended. It's all just TED Talk after TED Talk after TED Talk. And Paul wants to say, hey, that's not true. That there actually will be a time when all of this... um, process will come to an end and will God will call us to an account. And that is both the return of Jesus Christ, but for each of one, it's also our own personal point of death. That when we come to the end of the temporary life that we are living as individuals, uh, that will be the time where we will come before God and he will deal with us as he seems right and fit as the one who loves us. And so Paul wants to appeal, hey, this endless philosophizing is dangerous. We do need to at some point come to the conclusion and understand that we are accountable for the life that we live. I want to remind you of the first thing that I said about the gospel as I wrap up here. Um, I'm so grateful for this time that we have in that God is redeeming so much of the suffering and the craziness of the season of COVID-19. So many silver linings in the midst of so much difficulty. And one of the silver linings, I believe, is in the fact that we get to be in the book of Acts right now. And I feel like God is equipping us as a church that has had to take a break from just the continued experience of weekly worship and life as usual, and to really set us apart for a season and teach us how to be witnesses and teach us how to share the gospel so that when the time comes and we gather again, that we are better equipped as a church to be a voice and to be a witness into the communities that we're in. Not saying that now isn't the time as well. It's not like there is no opportunity to witness for sure. But I feel like the book of Acts in this season for us is is the Holy Spirit training us to understand how to witness well. And this particular passage today, in a sense, is a pinnacle of how to witness well in the culture we live in. And so I encourage you to go back to it and see these things, uh, what Paul taught us, that Jesus is the answer to the specific questions that every human is asking, that every human has a degree of a revelation of God, and our call is to help advance that, that revelation to the next step. That we always want to speak the truth in the face of misunderstanding about who God is and what he's done. And then we always want to offer a response. And this is where I know a lot of us struggle. Like I, I I never feel like I have the confidence to call someone to respond. Have you heard enough yet? Can I invite you to turn to God? Can I invite you to turn to God? But this is our call. This is the mission. And as Daniel reminded us last week, it's not that God has a mission for his church to do, but God has always had a mission. And in this season, he calls the church to be a part of that mission, and that's who we are. We want to transition to worship now, and we're going to start off worship with the Revelation song, which could seem like an interesting place to start. I think for us today, it's the perfect place to start. I want to remind you of the background to the book of Revelation. John, an aged apostle of Jesus, perhaps the last living apostle at this point in his life, is also in quarantine. He's actually in exile on an island, and the scripture tell us the reason he's there is because he has preached the gospel, just like Paul in prison. Paul was exiled to an island. On the day that this revelation was written, it was a Sunday. It says on the Lord's day, and so it was just like today. It was a morning. He was in exile, and um, the Spirit came to him and gave him this revelation, and primarily. This is a revelation of who Jesus is today. When we spend time in the Gospels, we have some great images of who Jesus is and especially was as a human who walked the earth. But it's so good for us to remember that Jesus is still alive and he is not in the form that he was when he was on the earth. There were three men that got a glimpse of the form that Jesus is in right now. Peter, James, and John were allowed to go up to a mountaintop with Jesus, and while they were there, uh, Jesus was transformed temporarily into his eternal form, the form that he is now in, and those three men got to see it, and they didn't know what to do about it. They wanted to build temples, just like the Athenians, to put him in there, and he said, no, 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 that's not how you respond to this. But then he said to the apostles, hey, don't tell anyone until after I'm risen from the dead, after I come back to life and then you can tell everyone. And now John is given again this amazing transformative uh, celestial vision of who Jesus is. David is going to read uh, that passage and I want you to to Picture in your own mind, with your own imagination, and in your own heart, Jesus today, Jesus now. This is a description of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who's been resurrected from the dead. Listen to it, and then let's worship out of that reality of who Jesus is today, the resurrected one, our Lord, our Savior,
2: our King. Revelation 1, 12 through 18. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades.